Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. We've got a mammoth task ahead of us today. We're going to try and encapsulate everything that Eric Stewart did from Fruity Rooties through to his last solo album. And that means that we're going to try and and tell a, a chronological story from around the late 70s, Sad Cafe, going right up to Viva La Difference. And for that very reason, we've brought our faithful crew on board tonight with Panny in California and Liam Newton down in St Albans. Thank you, chaps, for joining Paul and me. You're welcome. Good to be back. Yep, good to be back again as well. Great to have you. Um, so I, I, I think Sad Cafe would be a really good point to start. I'm really impressed with Eric's work on Sad Cafe. And I'm looking forward to just highlighting a few of the, the fantastic tracks that he produced for them. So I, I think with um, with Sad Cafe, the, the connection with 10CC actually goes back to 1965 with, uh, with both Eric and Graham because uh, the lead singer, Paul Young, who um, we should point out isn't the same Paul Young as Wherever I Lay My Hat, That's My Home. It's a different different Paul Young, yeah. uh, who was in a Manchester band called Toggery Five mm. and was very well regarded as a, as a singer at that time. And um, if you remember from the, from the Mindbenders podcast, the Mindbenders turned down the chance to record I'm Alive um, and went for another track instead. And this song was passed on to Toggery Five and they actually uh, recorded that song i think with ron richards producing it and then they had a bit of a stroke of bad luck that it got into the uh, the hands of the hollies who heard it mm. and they very quickly then recorded it and it was released by the hollies and went to number one and um the song i think the hollies were going to record or one of the songs that graham had given to the hollies was something called i think it was going away or going home as a as a track which they recorded as as a single but it was never actually released i think it came out on a you can get it on youtube i think it came out in about 2012 yeah um but i know that eric talks about first listening to the voice of paul young at that time so he was on the radar i guess in the in the manchester scene and, and he'd actually he actually also performed on the mandala band album um that eric graham Lol and Kevin also guested on that eventually came out in 78. And I think some of the members of of that crew who'd um, recorded on that album then formed this band, Sad Cafe. Um, And they had released a couple of albums um, without any great success, um, but I think were well regarded as a a live band. And um, had then been signed by Harvey Lisberg, uh, done a management deal with with Harvey Lisberg. And I think the um, the intention then was to try to give them their commercial breakthrough. So I guess through the Harvey Lisberg connection, um, Eric was signed up to produce their third album, which was intended to be their their commercial breakthrough. That was the that was the if you like the um, the purpose of bringing those those talents together. And, and this was um, the the facades album. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So Eric had just finished um, recording Bloody Tourists. They finished that at the end of um, June 78. And actually, Sad Cafe were the first band 
ever to record at Strawberry South ah. uh, after the, the studio was opened up for external booking. So Eric went straight out of uh, Bloody Tourists. Uh, they produced the album sort of July, August um, uh, 78. And then Eric went back to 10CC to, to work on the, um, on the tour, obviously, that was happening at that time. I saw the lamplight from your window I didn't think you were home Sitting there all alone So I came up to your room to ask you why Why did you hurt me so? Why did you have to go away? Uh, my understanding is he was then due to mix the album in, in January 79, but obviously that didn't happen because mm. of the, the tragic car accident. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I can only think that the, the fact that the record was then delayed, because it was recorded in July 78, but was well over a year before it came out, was they waited till um, Eric was better to um, to finish, to get his mix of the album. So I think on the credits it does say it was produced and mixed by uh, by Eric. Yeah. And... Um, and it and it and it, it absolutely achieved um, the goal. It, it gave them their commercial breakthrough. The um, the first single, "Every Day Hurts," was a huge hit in the UK. I think got to number three towards the end of '79, which must have been a great boost to Eric's convalescence at that time, as yeah. he was sort of uh, recovering from the accident. Um, there was a couple of follow-up singles, "Strange Little Girl," I think was a, was a sort of a, a top thirty hit, and then there was a song called "My Oh My," which was which sounds like a Rolling Stones yeah. pastiche with Paul Young doing a great Mick Jagger, yeah. uh, you know, almost impression, which was just outside the top ten, and it took Facades to number eight, I think, in the charts. So yeah. um, it really did succeed in in catapulting them to their, you know, giving them the breakthrough, and it was, you know, a lot of it was down to Eric's Eric's production. Definitely, I, I really like the album, Liam. I think it's really eclectic. That there are so many genres they have in a crack out, and uh, and I think Eric's production is totally spot on on that record. Um, and I, I guess everybody loves Everyday Hurts, don't they? Really, I think it's a wonderful record. Yeah, and I think when you listen to the vocal harmonies in the chorus. Um, you know that they smack of of a sort of production, you know, idea if you like that that you can imagine Eric putting forward, yeah. you know, to really propel that chorus to um, to being particularly radio friendly. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think lyrically the album, um, you know, I think is a bit so so. I, I think yeah. that's with with Sad Cafe, um, the songs were a little bit more. Um, I, I don't know, they were less exceptional. But I think the performances were great. Obviously, Paul Young is an amazing vocalist. Yeah. And, um, and Vic Emerson, the keyboard player, um, clearly also um, caught Eric's attention mm -hmm. because he obviously went on to sort of guest on the next few 10CC albums and solo projects and actually became the sort of part of the touring yeah. band when uh, when Duncan Mackay left. So there's lots to recommend it, without a shadow of a doubt. There's some great tracks on there. I mean, My Oh My, in particular, I think, is, um, is, a, is a great production yes um you know the way that kind of builds so uh, yeah and and uh, absolute vindication in in getting eric to produce it i agree it's, it's actually my favorite uh eric stewart production work after bloody tourists actually uh th th there's lots of really beautiful stuff apart from everyday hurts which most people know know well i really like strange little girl actually um there's, mm. th there's that that lovely kind of odd spooky intro and it's, it's got a cello in there 
there's there's like a, almost like a a post punk feel to it. Do you know what I mean? It, it's yeah. got it's got that kind of the the slightly dry strawberry south sound. You know, quite roomy, um, a little bit XDC dare I say it. Um, and so th- there's actually a, a kind of a spiky edge in amongst the, the kind of lovely chords and the, the lush harmonies and everything. I, I think the album's got an awful lot to offer. And I think Eric Stewart at that time, Eric Stewart in the 70s, was arguably the, the perfect choice of producer because uh, he's nailed that production because he's he's sensitive to Sad Cafe and the, the beauty of what they do. But he's also bringing out the funkiness, the rockiness, the bluesiness, the Rolling Stonesiness. You mentioned the, the Mick Jagger mm. thing, and clearly mm. that you know, hugely influenced by by the Stones. Um, but there's a lot more going on, and, and I think Eric is sort of relishing those that that musical palette. I think it's a wonderful piece of work from Eric. This. Yeah, I think the, the the singles are really kaleidoscopic, aren't they? They yeah. they all sound, I can remember all of them well at the time, you know, that they they made an, an impact and they all sounded different then and sound and sound different now. Yes. Um and I guess we'll go on to talk about the the fourth album which you also produced a bit later perhaps, but yeah, it, it certainly commercially a big success singles wise. I was looking at the stats and uh, they had six top 75 UK hits all produced by Eric and four of them in the top 40 over yeah. the course of 15 months so a real a real high point for, for Eric's work in production definitely yeah I, I had not heard of the Sad Cafe albums in a long time uh, and kind of revisiting them you know the last few weeks and kind of going through them I, I have to admit I wasn't that impressed of you know, buy them by today's standards, and hmm. I have to bear that in mind. They sound just like, you know, the, the time period that they were created in. Uh, the singles are great. I think Every Day Hurts, you know, is a classic uh, record. Um, it's amazing that it wasn't all over the U.S. charts, because I, I don't think it did well here in the States. Kind of reminds me of Air Supply meeting 10CC, yeah. kind of in a funny yeah. way. That's a great spot, actually, Panny. And um, yeah. but add to that the fact that Everyday Hurts is in a very odd time signature. It's in threes, so it's a yeah. one, two, three, one, two, like a fast waltz time, which makes yeah, it very unusual. Yeah, I hear a lot of uh, you know with the vocals and some of the other production techniques that Eric is using in it. I hear a lot of Kevin and Lowell influence on it for some reason. Um, I don't know why. But it just kind of has a Kevin and Lowell feel to it at times. Uh, one one of the thing about the production of the whole album, I went through the whole album and listened to you know most of the tracks. Uh, Eric seems to be cat capturing that uh, thing we talked about before that you've got a cold guitars. <laughs> You know, Eric seems to be using that, you know, you've got a cold guitar, that double-tracking guitar that we talked about. Yes. And, you know, it, it's it's kind of grating, you know, to hear it nowadays. And, you know, I, I, I think what you said about the lyrics or what Paul, uh, 
who had mentioned that the lyrics weren't that strong on the album. I kind of agree with that too. The songs are okay, and the production is okay for, you know, for the time it was created, but uh, it doesn't hold up that well to me, you know. Uh, but to, of, well, that's interesting for me. It this album holds up way better than the follow-up, and and uh, the, the the third album, Facades. It really does run the gamut. Paul talked about the sort of kaleidoscopic sound, and that might right. sound a bit dramatic, but if you go through the sort of what Eric was adding to these tracks, you've got the lovely kind of trademark Eric Stewart harmony pads on Get Me Out of Here, which are, which are great. Um, Take Me to the Future is kind of a, like a Mick Jagger pastiche, but it, and, yep. and it's kind of very US AOR friendly. But the yeah. production is very dry, but very dynamic. And you know, I I, I rave about yeah. that kind of dry production. I love it. I love it. Um, Strange little girl. We've talked about Crazy Oyster is is like a little bit like Look Here, um, quite rocky. Emptiness is 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 like almost like I don't know sub Roxy music almost. And then Cottage Love, um, discuss uh, is a bit proggy. <laughs> Um, it's a bit funky and, and very, very dry. So I, I think Eric is kind of breathing with the musical genres and having fun, relaxing yeah. into the, pro- the production job here. And, and I think it, it reminds me in a way, this album, of Animal Olympics, in that it's, right. having, it's having fun with genres and the producer yeah. hasn't got his thumb up his arse. He's just really enjoying the job. And, and I do find that too, Sean. I find yeah. that Eric's you know, adding a lot of different things, and there's a lot of different styles and different uh, bits and pieces that yes. he's putting in. For instance, on "Strange Little Girl," the you know the the backing vocals that keep popping up in different places are fantastic. Yes, and I, mean, yes. I, did, I did like, and and it almost tries to be Tensy C without being Tensy C. You know, it it just kind of has that same feel and, and i think it works very well yeah i think of the three singles uh strange little girl is probably my favorite my oh my is probably a bit second i i do like you know that it sounds like the stones even the keyboards are mm. uh reminiscent of the uh keyboard player at the stones ian stewart right uh, yeah it's beyond my knowledge there penny i'm hearing i'm hearing sirens <laughs> yeah, yeah. Welcome, welcome to San Leandro. Oh no, sorry, Chalton. <laughs> I think the only thing I would say is there was there was a great story I think from Eric when they started to make the album because I think there was that that story where each of the members of the band sort of came into the control room with their own individual ideas about how each song should be recorded. And literally one by one, they all came in to try to sort of have a word in his ear and influence them. And I think he uh, he had to sit them all down and say, look, guys, you need to let me produce this record rather than, you know, giving me your, you know, individual views, which is interesting. And I think for me, what it does is it captures a very good live band, which they were, because mm-hmm. actually a lot of the performances you can hear you know how tight they were as a as a band they had two guitarists which is where that dual guitar thing which they i know they like doing a lot on stage yes uh, but they but they had two you know very good guitarists in in the band i also i think vic emerson's keyboard playing i mean he was always um 
I think particularly the stuff, he's obviously a great piano player, but I think the, the kind of synth mm-hmm. uh, intro to Nothing Left to Lose. I think is a really beautiful opening to that that song which just shows how how good he was i guess on the sense which is i guess why they brought him in to um help with 10 cc so no i think uh a, a good a good record and a good job all around really no i i agree and you get the you get the sense liam i think of of a, a really good band playing in the room that's something missing from a a lot of the the later 10cc material uh, and that's one of the reasons why I, I really stick both thumbs up in the air on this album I think it's a very vibrant real um, and exciting production because it's it's authentic yep. but it's really creative and colorful as well uh, much in contrast with the follow-up which I, I really don't like at all apart than probably with the exception of one track keeping it from the troops which yeah. I like. Yeah. I find it difficult to like the follow-up. Between the recording of the first and the second was was Eric's accident. That that's yes. right chronologically, isn't it? It, it is correct. Yeah. I, I mean, that just adds further weight to our argument. As we like, as we look at this period, we we see more and more clearly. I think what a cataclysmic blow that was to Eric's personal momentum, mm. confidence, and and everything else. I mean, he's he was flying at the beginning of that Strawberry South period. You know, he produced brilliantly, Bloody Tourists. Whatever you think of the yes. the, the quality of the actual material, agreed. Uh, and this album, and not. And that's that sparkle was never really there again. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. There were moments. Sorry, I think there were moments on Fruity Rooties, as we we highlighted mm. last time, um, and probably Fruity Rooties was his last kind of the heyday of his production style. But I'm with you, Paul. That that the Sad Cafe album in 1980 kind of. It it, show, it showed up really that the huge effect that that accident had had on Eric's, you said confidence. Uh, I think perhaps on his in his ability to yeah. to act in the studio to hear things. Perhaps I, uh, we don't know. We, I guess we'll never know. Yes, yes. Um, and quite disturbing. And I really, I really feel for him because you can you can you can feel that dip in form, can't you? Yeah, I found the production on. You know the Sad Cafe album. Uh, it just compared to uh, Facade. It, it just it doesn't seem that inspired. Uh, mm. and, and you know, like you said, it might have just been Eric's confidence that was lacking, and you know him trying to get back on track after the accident. But uh, it, it, I could not get through more than just a couple songs. Yeah, uh, to this because I just found it to be very stale and very boring and just very. Uh, Again, inspired. That's really the only word I can kind of put on it. Yeah, I agree that there are moments, aren't there? I, mean, I think. No, I was going to say. I, I think. That, I think also the probably the songs generally weren't quite at the same level either as no, no, as true, facades. True. I mean, there's a few good songs on it, but you know, songs like La Di Da are just 
you know, throwaway hmm. songs to start with, and then the production's very kind of bland. Uh, it's a, not a great, not a great combination. And I think the um, you know this was record recorded in the aftermath of Look Here, so they'd hmm. finished Look Here in December '79, and then this was January, February 1980. So you're coming off the back of that Look Look Here experience. And that's um, enough, that's enough to knock this. the stuffing out of anybody, isn't it? tracks on this album that I, I thought was actually pretty good was the, the track called Love Today, which I mm. thought was probably one of the stronger tracks on this album. Okay. Um, but I don't think it was a single. I think it was just an album track. I've got Ploddy, Ploddy Rock I've got for that one. Liam, you mentioned the, the dueling guitars before, and, mm. I, and I heard that kind of Thin Lizzy 10cc influence yep. on Losing You, uh, yep. which is a very uh, kind of a Toto-y American yeah. AOR thing, and and, th- and those harmonised guitars really made me think of, of Thin Lizzy and Ten CC. Some other slightly interesting things, apart from keep, uh, keeping it from the troops, which I thought was a little bit steely Danish, and it's got that nice atmospheric intro and the eerie synths, and I thought yeah. that was the probably the only moment on the album where my my ears really pricked up yeah i think i think on some of the songs there's there's an occasional chorus that jumps up i think losing you's got a really nice chorus but it's just the rest of it doesn't kind of go anywhere i think there's a few elements like that keeping it from the troops i would agree for me is the sort of standout track on the album just because it's more interesting mm-hmm. you know the subject the subject matter is more interesting the uh, the production is more interesting because of the subject matter and everything else. The rest of it just feels a little bit, you know, the production feels very slick yes, um, and, and quite bland overall from a sounds point of view. And I, and I think a lot of the songs just aren't up to scratch either. Maybe, maybe they were, they were trying to follow up facades too quickly. Maybe it was that, that was part of the, uh, the issue, but, but overall it, it just wasn't a success you know, as a record, it didn't it didn't follow up on the success of um, of facades. It, it wasn't a big uh, the singles or the album. Were, you know, weren't hugely successful. And even though Sad Cafe would continue to be a big live draw, you know, I think they were still touring and a, and, and a big live act at the time. Mm. They never really um, uh, recovered the uh, or got the momentum that they that they sort of started with facades. They never really re- recovered from that. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. To me. The 1980 album doesn't feel like a follow-up at all. I don't know what you think about this, gents, but for me, Facades sounds like a very British album because it's got the, the the grit of that post-punk sound in it. And yet nine, the 1980 Sad Cafe album sounds like an attempt to be American. Mm. And, and it's like they they kind of lost their focus. They lost their identity. And they were they were disappearing up there. Toto Ario Speedwagon ness. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It, it, yeah. it, it, it was just a kind of a, a complete wrong direction from a, a band who'd had a successful third album. Surely yes. you, you'd, you'd kind of emulate that sound or that direction. But instead, I, it, it, to me, it feels cynically like a very American record. Yeah, it has, it has a feel of uh, the other band that kind of came to mind. I think they're Canadian, actually. Is a band called Loverboy. You know, they had a couple of oh, yeah. hits here in the States. Okay. And don't I kept, know them. Don't know them. 
I kept hearing Lover Boy uh, when I was hearing this album and you know some of the American rock and roll bands that uh, around at the time uh, bands like Tesla and, uh, uh, and and it's funny that this this album actually did chart in the US I think it got the LP got to like you know 160 in the charts in the US uh, okay is that a good thing <laughs> I, I don't know I don't know I don't remember ever hearing Sat Cafe on the radio so yeah, they, yeah. a British band and a U.S. band, but uh, there might have been an undertone of trying to make it sound like an American. Uh, mm. It definitely, band. definitely feels like it to me. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe because facades hadn't sold in America, maybe yeah. I don't know. The RCA A and R man maybe said, "That's what we need." You know, that's mm. the next market to break. Maybe, maybe that was part of the vibe. Yeah. Who knows? But, and, uh, and it look doesn't at, work. Does Liam, it? look at 10CC. They they almost sounded yeah. obsessed with with getting success yeah. in the states, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. When you listen to albums like Meanwhile, and even yeah. Windows in the Jungle, it, they, they 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 kind of smell American. Mm. Yeah, that, that's the same point, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, you know, again, I, I think there was an undertone of trying to make it sound American and yeah. to have that success in the U.S. Yeah, it's it's ironic, isn't it? You, you look back to Ten CC's debut album, which is it it is about america and yet it couldn't be more british do you know what i mean mm. it's very very different that the whole ethos is uh, these later albums the, the ones we're talking about at the moment are kind of round the wrong way um mm. I, I'm, I'm just getting a little bit kind of lyrical and regretful i think here um wishing they could have had that the sand in my face hat on i saw the devil he was looking at me We were talking that they were a good live band. I can I can really reinforce that. They were probably amongst the first dozen bands I ever saw. Oh, I saw okay. them in nine, I saw them in nineteen eighty, late eighty, at the Hammersmith Odeon, and they were fantastic, mm. amazing band. I mean, I can still recall that gig when they were, when I was about to go to so many different gigs, and that one stands out. Uh, Paul Young, yeah, van, fantastic front man, mm. and the rest mm. of the band brilliant too so um yeah despite what happened on the the uh, disappointing fourth album they remained a, a cracking live unit oh fantastic but eric captured them on the third album there's no question about that yeah i guess i guess one other thing just to finish it off we should probably just mention that paul young went off to, you know to great success with mike and the mechanics yeah. you know he was one of the two singers with with paul carrick with uh, mike and mechanics and um I think sang All I Need Is A Miracle, which is one of their big hits off that debut album. Yeah. Mm. Um, so he went off to have a sort of, I guess, a second second career. Very sadly died uh, very, you know, too too yeah, too soon. He, I think it was in 2000. He was in his mid-50s, very healthy, but, but passed away. And um, just one thing I would say is, I don't think it's necessarily that well-known, but he, he'd recorded some stuff in those last years that, um, you know, various people, musician friends helped to complete you know after he passed away and it eventually came out as a, a posthumous album called chronicles in in 2011 and there's a there's a i think eric and graham both guest on that album um but there's a beautiful beautiful track um i think it's the last track in on the album called i'm in heaven again 
yeah. uh, which if people haven't heard, you should definitely um, check out. It's a great song and it's got these very haunting, um, I'm not in love kind of harmonies at the end. And I'm pretty sure you can hear Graham. Graham's looped his, his sort of backing vocals. Mm. But it's um, if anyone wants to check out um, Paul Young beyond the more famous things, I would, I would definitely recommend that track. I feel so happy inside. I'm in heaven again. Thanks. And wasn't am I right in thinking that uh, Paul's untimely death almost uh, brought Eric out of retirement for a live tribute show that that was done in Paul's honor in uh, around that time? Yes, he was due to play I'm Not In Love at the at the tribute concert at the uh, Manchester Apollo. Um, and I think he was there and did the rehearsals. I'm not, I'm not clear on why um, he didn't actually perform, but, um, but certainly he was there, there in support, absolutely. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, the musical relationship between Eric and, and Paul McCartney. As, as we've already explained, uh, the two of them knew each other quite well going back to the, the 60s. And certainly in the, in the late 70s, um, I think socially they got to know each other reasonably well. And sorry to drag Eric's car accident into the conversation once again, but I, I think this is significant. And if... Um, what happened was that Paul uh, rang Eric up while he was still seriously ill, um, which Eric always was grateful for, that supporting uh, conversation. And I think at that very uh, time, whilst Eric was still in hospital, he, he, he said, well, when you get better, we'll, we'll do some work together. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, which is a really nice gesture on Paul's part. And not only that, he kind of, he, he was as good as his word because, uh, they, they did start working together. Um, I'm sure we know this, what Paul McCartney was doing generally at that at that time in the late 70s. He was basically getting fed up with, with wings. They, they'd kind of crested. They'd reached a, a vast success in the mid-70s um, with um, going back to America, touring America with, with, with several uh, very good-selling albums. Um, but I think Paul McCartney was actually... A, a little fed up with the he, he'd kind of done the group thing um uh th their last album uh back to the egg wasn't as successful either either commercially or critically and then paul mccartney recorded solo mccartney 2 and then he was working up a batch of new songs um and it became clear eventually that he didn't want to do it with wings and that, and um, they were disbanded and George Martin was brought back in to properly pr produce an album, if you like. And this album eventually became Tug of War. It's a tug of war Though I know I mustn't grumble It's a tug of war and Eric um, kind of f filled in the, the slot that had been vacated by Denny Lane in a way, which was as Paul's right-hand man, you might say, a very accomplished musician who was great with vocal harmonies, arrangements. And, and Eric worked consistently with Paul all the way through uh, Tug of War, Pipes of Peace, 
um, and then onto the, the album Press to Play, which we'll talk about later, which was a, a different subject entirely where they collaborated more fully. But, but this first this first phase of, of their collaboration, uh, Eric was a very important player um, in, in those albums. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think you made a good point. I, I think George Mark might have been the one who may have suggested to Paul, even though Paul and Eric were in touch, to bring Eric in to work on, uh, you know, the you know, tug of war. Um, Eric basically comes in and does a lot of the backing vocals on five or six of the tracks, maybe eight of the tracks. I don't know the exact number. I think it was also a time when Paul was, as you say, tired of being in a band and wanting to go in a different direction and try some different things. And going back and bringing George Martin in to produce uh, Tug of War, I, I find this period of McCarthy stuff to be better than the stuff that came before. You know, like you said, uh, Back to the Egg and uh, the McCarthy 2 album. But I also find that... Um, George Martin was really kind of on the top of his game, and all these albums sound very slick. And I think Eric's vocal kind of add to some of that slickness uh, in the production, you know, whether directly or indirectly, or just the sound of his vocals. George Martin, you know, produced with Eric at the helm as well. Yeah, the the, vo the vocal harmony sound is very interesting. The wings yeah. sound, which featured uh, Paul. Denny Lane and Linda, who is very significant in, in the harmonies as well. That right. those those three had a real keynote sound all through uh, albums like Band on the Run, Venus and Mars, Wings at the Speed of Sound, etc. Right. And that's definitely different now. Eric's in the mix. Uh, in a way, it's almost more homogenized. The sound. I've listened hard, and I can never actually pick Eric's voice out. So We know he's in there um, because it is a completely different sound from Paul, Linda, and Denny. It's it's, right. it's a bigger sound. And that may be in part due to George Martin's approach or the, the way yeah. he handles harmonies. But yeah. it, it's surprising to me that I can never actually pick Eric out. Yeah. So he's almost an invisible presence, although he clearly is an important presence. He thought, absolutely is, Paul. Paul, Paul. I couldn't agree more. Do you know what? I, I, if I can pin my my colours to the mast here, mm. I think what we hear on tracks like Tug of War and Take It Away is the best vocal blend Eric gets since 10cc. It, it might be one of the best vocal blends ever. There's something kind of molecular that happens between the two McCartneys and Eric. For me, the, the two key tracks are Tug of War and, and, and Take It Away. It's a wonderful vocal sound. I'm totally with you, Paul. We can't hear Eric. We can kind of hear Linda, who I think mm. is a very, very underrated harmony singer. There's something very, very sweet about the way she blends with other people. Um, mm. And and I think that I think the, the vocal sounds on those records are, is absolutely beautiful. Especially on uh, Take It Away, the ending part, you know, the fade out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, where the vocals come in towards the end. I mean, 
fantastic. It's, it's slick. It's full. It's you know uh, just a great tag for that record. Yeah. I've always loved that part. It's yeah. a, it's an amazing production. I, I I'm amazed that the vocals don't overwhelm the rest of the record at that point. There's still yeah. space for the horns mm. and the rhythm track and everything. It's such a skillful production, yeah. and that must that must be down in large part to George Martin. I think. Yeah, totally. It's interesting. Uh, just just to add to what you're, you're you're saying, Sean. There's a I think Stylus magazine described that end of um, uh, of, of Take It Away as. Um, the, what does it say? The most gorgeous piece of vocalization, this side of the chorus closing. I'm not in love. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I think okay. a lot of lot of people feel that way about that that closing, uh, but in particular, absolutely, yeah, totally. I think it's absolutely delicious. Uh, and uh, I, I, I don't know. I listen to it and I feel proud that Eric was part of that. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Um, and, very much. And I guess. You know, like a lot of the the harmonizers that we're in love with, Paul. Sometimes you can't hear who the individual parts are. Yes. Um, and it, it's, I suppose, a, a credit to to the mixing and the production that that each of their parts kind of becomes this wonderful homogenous whole. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to know how they did it. it. Whether they all sang the same part and doubled it and tripled it, or all sang different parts. Whether mm. they were at the same mic, different mics. If we ever get to meet Eric and ask him some questions, that's one of the things I'm, I would really like to ask him. Yeah. Talking of harmonies, uh, there's a track called "What's That You're Doing," the Stevie Wonder, yeah, yeah. the Stevie Wonder track, and the harmonies at the end really remind me of Speed Kills. Sean, it's funny you mention that because that I, I had listened back to that uh, uh, probably about a month ago. Uh, you know, I pulled out you know the CDs, and I'm not crazy about the track overall, but yeah. there's little bits and pieces that you know you hear different things and speed kills was the same track that kind of came to mind, especially, I guess it's about the last 30 or 40 seconds of the song mm. where they kind of went into the, you know, the bit where they're kind of ad living a bit. Uh, yes, it, no, it just that's had, it. Totally. And, and it's funny that the, the vocals really rescue even some of the weaker tracks on this record. There's one called ballroom dancing, which I hate. <laughs> uh, it's it's yeah. kind of really annoying rockabilly but there's something about the harmonies that remind me of a, a californian band that whose name escapes me well while you're dredging that name from your memory no, no that was uh, that was, oh, a, that was oh, a joke i, I know that was <laughs> oh, a, a jab sorry i was just going to say um what's that you're doing liam knows this because he he, he wrote it in his book. I don't know sh whether Sean and Panny, you know this, but that was partially recorded, and I think the backing vocals were recorded at Strawberry South. Oh, oh that rings the bell. That's yes, right. yes, yes. Yeah, uh, I remember when I was speaking to Eric, it, we, he was describing what a thrill it was to have, you know, to be recording at Strawberry South. Um, not just with McCartney uh, at Strawberry South, but with Stevie Wonder as well. There's a, I think it's in his book. There's a great picture. I think that yeah. Linda took of um, of, of St Stevie Wonder and and Eric together, 
Um, so certainly partly recorded at, at Strawberry South. And I think um, whether the tapes were rolling, who knows? But, it, but he describes, I think they were they had a jam session after that and played till the early hours of the morning. And um, he describes it as some of the sort of happiest moments of his sort of musical life. So whether any of that was is on tape somewhere, who knows? Wow. But it, mm. you, you can imagine what a thrill. I mean, it was always, um, obviously, Paul McCartney had recorded at Strawberry North, you know, uh, before... But also yeah. then to have him and and Stevie Wonder at, at Strawberry South must have been such a such a thrill. So oh, uh, absolutely, totally. totally. Yeah, how how fabulous. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the um, Eric's input spanned that that whole period. The, the, the chronology is slightly muddled by the order in which these tracks came out. But if if you look at the uh, recording sessions, there's a great book by a guy. I'm looking at it here called Luca Perezzi. Um, it's called Paul McCartney Recording Sessions, 1969 to 2013. And anybody who's interested in that kind of subject, I thoroughly recommend it. And uh, the first thing that Eric worked on, uh, according to the documentation, was We All Stand Together. Remember that, the Frog song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, mm. which was actually recorded as early as late 1980, although it didn't come up till 1984. And, and Eric is all over Tug of War, as we've said. He's also, also all over Pipes of Peace. That's right. In, including singing backing vocals on the the Michael Jackson duet say 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 mm. and and the other and the other one which I absolutely love called the man I don't know whether you know that track yes yeah this is the man love that one he's also on no more no more lonely nights he's on he's 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 also on spies like us um and and on pipes of peace so he's singing there on some massive hits you know say yeah. say say and number two I, I, nights number two pipes of peace number one i yeah i agree i've always really enjoyed that album paul I, I loved it at the time. A, a, a guy uh, I shared a flat with at, at uni at the time uh, had bought it on cassette, and right. uh, and we, we used to play it a lot. So I, I've got a lot of fondness for it, and I think it, it gets some bad press sometimes. But I think I think it's a really enjoyable album. It's commercial. Yeah. Um, it there's some beautiful tunes on it, um, and uh, I don't know. It, it's a very uplifting record. I I, I kind of wish they'd jettisoned some of the weaker tracks and made one fantastic album out of the entire sessions hmm. tug of war and pipes of peace could yeah. have been made into a brilliant album you could even have tug of war opening the album and pipes of peace closing it yes um, yeah, uh, great point Eric does some some great work, and as well as the vocals, he, he plays quite a lot of guitar. Again, it's very difficult yeah. to hear to hear exactly what he does. The one, the only song where he's listed as the sole guitarist, which is another fabulous song, is is called "So Bad" from Pipes of Peace, which has also got a sumptuous vocal arrangement. But he he is actually playing the, the, the rhythm guitar there on the basic track, and and you can hear it precisely because there's just one guitar. I think. Mm -hmm. And he also appears in the video uh, for So Bad, which uh, I had a chance to look at again. 
And it's kind of funny how the video, though, still kind of the cameras show Eric kind of standing and playing, but they they tend to kind of veer away from him and kind of focus more on Paul and Linda and Ringo, which they seem to be, uh, I don't know, in the frame a little bit more together, you know, during the video. And Eric yeah. kind of seems he's still kind of like the oddball out, which is something I kind of noticed on seeing it again. Uh, it just... You know, Eric was involved, but I, I think McCartney, all you know, has always had a tendency to keep uh, guest musicians or other people kind of at arm's length. Or, or, or to be fair on him, perhaps yeah. the, the video directors would have known that the Beatles, the the Beatles members, would have been more of a draw. Yeah, absolutely. That that's totally true too. Yeah, people don't know who Eric is, I guess, especially here in the states. The, I mean, the video, I don't know whether everybody's seen it, the video to take it away, I think is a much more interesting video. Um, yeah. I, mean, I mean, so bad it's fine, but it's, you know, it's a kind of, a, it's a very simple piece. I think the whole video for, for take it away um, is just much more interesting with John Hurt as the actor, you know, who's playing the impresario, the sort of manager. Um you know, and Eric's quite prominent within that, and obviously you've got you've got George Martin and Steve Gadd um, and Linda in it. But it's a really interesting story. Have you, have you all seen it? You're aware of it? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's you know I, I've read that even when they were filming uh, that video that uh, during uh, breaks and stuff, uh, the band actually did a lot of rock and roll songs for the audience. Mm. It was uh, yeah, you know, mostly p uh, picked from. Uh, McCartney, you know, fans that subscribe to the uh, McCartney uh, newsletter. What's it called? Uh, Club Sandwich. Club, Club Sandwich. Sandwich. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, that they did a drawing or something, and then people were chosen to go you know, do that uh, mm. film shoot. But um, yeah, it must have been you know a great, uh, a great experience you know for Eric to be part of that, and and I also get that that's probably where Eric maybe got in. You know, you know, contacted with Steve Gadd. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, which uh, Steve was later used on the Windows in the Jungle album, as we know. Yeah. Yeah, almost immediately after, or right yeah. around yes. that time, because that Absolutely. was filmed. That was filmed in the middle of '82, wasn't it? The takeaway video, sometime around yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Who can who can tell me? I, I don't understand this this next juncture. What happened between Pipes of Peace and Press to Play, where Paul suddenly dispensed with the services of George Martin? I can wait another day until I call you. You've only got my heart on a string and everything. The, the, the turning point in McCartney's solo career, certainly in the 80s, was the album we haven't talked about yet, Give My Regards to Broad Street, yes. which was obviously, well, was, was a soundtrack to a very unsuccessful, mm. uh, a clangor of a film with the mm. same title. I've never seen it, actually, to be honest. It's, it's very poor. It's one of those things where somebody really should have, you know, stood up to Paul and said, you know, don't do this film, or at the very least, get somebody to write a script because mm. he yeah. wrote it himself. But you know, with John Lennon no longer around, nobody, Paul only ever really listened to to, to John Lennon. Mm. Uh, mm. Maybe he would defer to George Martin on certain matters, but but um, he, you know, with, with with John no longer around, it, it was never really 
an equal collaboration. And I guess we'll come on to that a bit later with Press to Play. But but suffice to say, after Broad Street, uh, Paul wanted to do something else. And George Martin actually didn't want to produce any more albums. I think he wanted to, he, he you know wanted to quiet quiet down a little okay. bit, just take, take take a break. I so, think he had so, probably retired. Yeah. Yeah, he was on the way to retirement. Mm-hmm. Paul, Paul was always constantly searching for a hit. You know, success equals hit to Paul, to Paul McCartney. Yes. And uh, even before he'd um, started work on what became Press to Play, he'd done sessions with David Foster, who produced Chicago, for example. He'd done sessions with Phil Ramone, most of which never came out. So he was... Um, always searching for something um and those those projects were kind of not complete but then he came around to the idea of wanting to do an album um and then he came around to the idea of, of wanting to do it with eric as a as a collaborator and co-producer george martin uh, suggested uh, that, that eric should co-produce and co-write the album i believe I think George Martin suggested the co-production. I think Linda suggested the co-writing. Okay. Um, a bit further further down the line, but um, yeah, then you get. I mean, this is this is the interesting thing about Eric's book, isn't it? When you kind of read that passage in the book around, you know, because obviously George the Martin Padgett, sounds the Hugh Padgham kind of. Uh Thing. Well, there's the, the, the bit that, that for me that was really really sort of uh, sad within it was the, this this notion that George Martin had, had sounded him out. Then McCartney's manager had followed up Steve Shrimpton, I think, and got Eric in and signed the contract. Linda had then subsequently suggested they write together. Mm-hmm. And I think Eric concludes in his in his book that actually, when he looks back on the press to play um, incident, actually did did McCartney want eric to do that or was it linda and george and other people that had kind of put it forward mm-hmm. um so there's a really kind of um you know a, a, a sort of a, a bittersweet ending to the mm-hmm. uh, to the story because it's a project which i guess started out with much enthusiasm um you know particularly the opportunity to write with someone like mccartney i mean it's a dream come true for um for any songwriter because he hadn't right. done a lot of that had he i mean he'd done a, a right. couple of things with denny lane during the wings period but he hadn't really seriously done any any um songwriting collaboration really since since lennon yes um so to be to be you know sitting across the the studio with a couple of acoustic guitars looking at each other and um and and writing a batch of songs again must have been such a thrill um you know to do that there's an, an adrenaline feel on some of those earlier tracks we wanted to try and achieve that sort of feel again so we sat down in the studio with myself on acoustic or electric, Paul on acoustic or bass, Jerry Marotta on the kit, and just play the backing track through, the three of us, to retain that lovely spontaneity you can get that way. I think it's a magic thing, a band coming together. Any group of people, even a basketball team, a football team, a band, it's the same thing. There's something to do with the chemistry of the people. Oh, the, can you imagine? Yeah. Yes, even though Eric knew yeah. Paul well, he's he, he he says in his book that he that it was a thrill, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And you to, you would have been shitting yourself, wouldn't you? Well, I don't know, Eric. So you know, Eric had a, a fine pedigree of his own, and like and like we've just said, he knew Paul. So yes, it was a, a bit of a step up, but it wasn't like uh, a novice, you know. I think Eric's always been rightly confident in his abilities, and I'm sure he thought, 
he could bring as much to the table as as Paul did. Yeah, there's certainly a couple of interesting things on that on that record, I think. Um, but I struggle with it. Yeah, I I do think what what we have here, you know, um, everybody has a purple patch, and maybe Paul McCartney's was as long as from 1962 to say 1982, 83, mm. and, and Eric Stewart's was, you know. Uh, finishing perhaps around the same time so you have two you know immense talents uh gently receding perhaps they just they you know they've just coming off their huge role and and they just quite were they weren't quite so good anymore and no. the result is the result is the writing sessions which ended up with the songs on press to play yes and I, I, I quite like sorry panny i quite like the edge of these songs and i think we've said that on a pod before that there's a an attempt to be ballsy and and i like that mm. I, I i like there's a very s- a solid almost aggressive sound to some of these songs which i think is a very refreshing change But there's there's not much in the way of songwriting that kind of that, that that raises my eyebrows particularly, apart from two kind of obvious exceptions. Panny, you were saying. Yeah, I you know, I, I was kind of agreeing with that, Sean. I think Paul and Eric, when they really sat down to write together, I mean, up to that point, you know, Paul um, you know, a lot of the stuff that was coming out was very middle of the road, very uh, you know, soft rock orientated. Mm. And, and I think Paul might have been looking for an edge. And, you know, when you look at, you know, things like uh, uh, Pretty Little Head and uh, mm-hmm. Move Up Busker and Angry, which, you know, are just uh, kind of all out uh, songs that just kind of grab everything other than like the ballads and things that Paul is famous for. Yes. They, they do have a bit of an edge. Some of them work mm-hmm. pretty well. Some of them are a little bit, you know, even with the the production, they tend to be a little bit uh, hard to listen to now. Uh, you know, I, I think Eric was given a great opportunity and, and this whole thing with, you know, uh, that happened with, you know, the producer, uh, Pagham, whatever, however you pronounce his name. Hugh Pagham, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a shame that the, the three of them couldn't really produce the album together because I think Eric would have added a lot to the sound and, and, and going back to press to play it's hard for me to listen to that album because I it just sounds of its time of 1986 when all that techno technology and programming and stuff and again Paul looking for a hit he tried to you know find a producer or find some way of having a hit in the middle of that yeah. and do something that he was totally not uh completely uh, comfortable with you know in terms of his style when you listen to however absurd which i think is one of the most interesting things on the record it's almost spoiled by the fact that hugh padgham has been asked to to produce that drum sound you know he's got he's brought in Mm. phil collins and they've got that, <laughs> doo-doo, 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 
sort of drum sound <laughs> from five years yeah. earlier, which is kind of like five years after the zeitgeist. It, it, mm. it, it kind of strikes you as a bit of a desperate attempt to um, to, to get a hit, uh, even yeah. though I think that the track, that there's something quirky about it, which I like. Which Same reason I like Pretty Little Head, I suppose, because mm. there's, there's something gritty and a bit uncomfortable about it, which I find attractive. Do you know what I mean? I think the, the record's a bit of a dog's breakfast, really. Yeah. Uh, um, the group of songs, the more the, the more simple group of songs, the rockier ones, I'm thinking of things like Stranglehold. Yes, very bluesy, they isn't were, it? In their, yeah, in their original guise, where Eric... Um, had was was more involved what well, was basically co-producing it they're stripped down you can you can hear mm. some of those early versions earlier versions on the internet um yeah. that works well I, I do think pajam's approach to the more experimental tracks works quite well mm-hmm. um but it's the pr- production is is overdone i guess the temptation was just too great in the end for mccartney not to let Hugh walk all over the record because he'd you know he'd he'd had such success mm. but w- the warning bells should have sounded because this record was made very shortly i think after david bowie's tonight which is a dreadful record <laughs> which, which he also produced to no great effect yeah. uh, so it was a, a strange a strange time i think I like the experimentation, particularly on Pretty Little Head, um, yeah. but it sounds completely of its time. And, yeah. and, and that is so true of so many of these 80s records. I mean, we look at uh, at some future pod, Paul, we may well talk about Wax and, oh, uh, so, and, yeah. and the, the massive gulf between great songwriting and shit production. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, enough said. It's beautiful outside. I was going to say, I mean, I, I do think um, just going back to the songs for a second. I mean, I, I mean, I think there are some highlights for me. So, for I mean, I think foot, yeah, footprints, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, foot, footprints is, was always. Um, I mean, it's it's maybe less experimental, but I think um, I think what's interesting is you know Eric and Paul they tried different ways of writing songs together. So that one, as you, as you probably know, was, you know, Eric arriving literally deep in, deep in snow down to Paul's place. Okay. You know, says it says it's beautiful outside. And, and Paul says, that's a great line. And they, they kind of literally take it in turns of writing the next line of the song. Mm. Um, so it was all mapped out. You know, that was one way I think with pretty little head, they decided to, to sort of swap instruments. So I think Eric played the keyboards. I think maybe Paul's on the drums or whatever, but they, they tried different ways of songwriting for each, mm-hmm. each track. And even, even though footprints is on the, is on the more conventional side, I do think it's, it's a, it's got a beautiful story to it. I mean, the production's a bit overbearing on it. Um, I think the demo of, of Yvonne's the one, you know, there's a nice sweet song underneath that, you know, which was, a, which was inspired by this postcard that Nick Mason of Pink Floyd had sent, <laughs> yes. um, you know, it's an Eric, um, great, just, great tune hard. that, and and I, I, yeah. I, I think it, it, 
reaches fruition on the Mirror Mirror album, to be honest, Liam. I love that that version. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's just, it's just you know, the, this, I don't know, because it started, you probably got it in your in your book, Paul, but, but obviously the, the session started here in March, April tw- uh, 1985, and the album didn't come out until yeah. September 86. Yeah. So, you know, and Eric was maybe involved in the first six, seven weeks of, um, of the record's gen station. Obviously, interestingly, um, this is also the same period where Paul's playing at Live Aid. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so Eric probably would have left the project. Paul would have played at Live Aid. Then, he, then Paul goes back to work with Hugh Padgham on the project. And it's just those those layers and layers and layers of the kitchen sink production that's kind of that overwhelms the songs. It's hard to see the wood for the trees in the end. Yes. Um, and then obviously the passage of whatever it is, thirty years since hasn't helped because the sounds of sounds of dated. Um, so. So it is a missed opportunity, but I do, I do think underneath it all, there are there are a few um, um, you know good collaborations, and actually some of the songs I think that they wrote eleven songs together for this for this project. Some of them ended up more as B sides, so right away, tough on the tightrope, hang glide. Mm. Um, they ended up on B sides, and actually things like um, right away is quite an interesting little song. whether you've heard that one mm-hmm. um it's quite a throwaway you know song but it's got a quite a nice sort of rhythm and a simplicity to it because it hasn't been overwhelmed with the um, you know some of the production mm. no yeah. that's fascinating um just to go back liam to what you're saying saying about footprints and it's one of the more interesting ones for me apart from the fact i, I really like the the nice spanish guitar on it but there's, mm. there's some minor to major chord changes that really remind me of doris the florist Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and for yeah. that reason, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of warm towards it. Um, mm. Whether that was McCartney or, or Stewart, we, you know, we'll, we'll never know. Um, but yeah. it, it does, it does feel like Eric's work. Yeah, I was going to say, Footprints to me is probably the, you know, one of the great collaborations between the two of them. And as Sean said. The chord progression uh, is fantastic, and you know it ends up getting cluttered up with this, you know, synthesized embellishment that Pagum, you know, just dumps all over it, especially on the middle eight where it's just too, you know, uh, it's just too busy, you know, and mm-hmm. you know it's a moody, it's a moody haunting song, and I think Eric has said, maybe I did see an interview where he said that it was, you know, one of the songs that he wrote with Paul that he was most proud of. Okay, I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. A couple of things about footprints. Uh, Liam's already mentioned it was written in a different way. I think it was actually even more inventive than that. If I have this correct, it was written as a lyric first before yes. they put yes. before they put any yeah. music. Right. They wrote it one line at a time, which is yeah, really like Liam was saying. One. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. But that that was you know lyrics first, then music, which mm, which yeah. are, were almost as a poem that they kind of collaborated on together, um, and. Panny, if you think the version is overproduced, I would really recommend that you listen to the early version, which again yeah. is is available. We might be able to play a bit on the podcast. I it, have it, heard it. Yeah, I have heard it. Yeah. Okay, Paul's vocal isn't quite so uh, finished. I mean, it, Paul McCartney's yeah. vocal is brilliant on the finished version, but the the arrangement's much sparser and therefore yeah. nice. I think. It's beautiful outside. 
the other one the other one that's really good that you that uh, Liam mentioned tough on a tightrope uh, I remember when I first heard that I've, I've always loved that track I you know and, and it's kind of interesting this one just doesn't seem to have the uh, pageant touch on it uh, and it doesn't appear to be overproduced it's it makes me wonder if this one was actually finished before uh, Padgham, you know, had got his hands on it, you know, if he even did, you know. Okay, uh, interesting. Paul, Paul himself, you know. I know what you mean. It's got a more minimalist production, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's more straightforward, yeah. Yeah. I'd just like to put, give a shout out to the middle of However Absurd, which I think yeah. it's only brief, but it's one of the strongest moments on the record. And uh, that's a co-write between Paul and Eric. And mm. I think Paul is singing about Lennon at that point. Um, ah. Something about the emotion he taps into, you know, that's a, it's an unfinished conversation for him speaking to John Lennon. And uh, I, I really love that that small but significant part of the song. Yeah, and a great uh, string arrangement from Anne Dudley, I think, on that song, yes. which is, yes. you can't quite hear properly because of everything else kind of going on, but, um, yeah. but uh, yeah, I agree with you. Oh, fabulous. And, and you all know my admiration for Anne Dudley with all that art of noise shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And one thing before we, well, perhaps we're not going to leave the McCartney subject yet, but before we do, I'd like to mention that Eric was unlucky, I think, because... This was the period, his involvement with Paul almost exactly coincided with the, the point where Paul wasn't playing live. Um, yeah. Okay. You know, he, Eric was, if you like, preceded by Denny Lane uh, and succeeded by uh, Hamish Stewart, you know, who became Paul's lieutenant, if you like, when he mm -hmm. went back to, to live work in the late 80s. Now, okay, it may not have fit with Eric's schedule or what he wanted to do, but I could see Eric would have been a fantastic compliment to Paul uh, if, if he had been playing live in that yeah. period. And, yeah. and and he just didn't. That was a period where he, you know, he didn't play live. So that was a kind of a missed opportunity, yeah. I think. I'd read somewhere yeah. that, that, that Paul McCartney's confidence was really low at, at this stage, in the sort of early to mid-80s. Well, again, it's the it's the murder of Lennon. I mean, it, mm. you know, what what would you think if you were a working musician and and you know your uh, estranged but best friend, also a working musician, is, is murdered? Mm. I yeah. think you can't overstate the the impact that had on him. Yeah, and, and to take that a bit further, even after Lennon was shot, you know, there was a lot of articles talking about how Lennon was, you know, the Beatles and. You know, there was a, they they weren't slagging McCartney off, but there was all this ultra praise for John Lennon and yeah. all the great things that yes, he had. Yes, absolutely. You know, and and I'm sure that Paul kind of felt like, wow, you know, this guy has to die for all the stuff to come out. Mm. But what about me? You know, I was there too. You know, yeah, I yeah. I remember reading something about Paul saying that that period was difficult for him because all of a sudden he didn't seem to exist it was all john lennon yeah and, and and that could and that could you know have an effect on anybody who uh you know was part of you know something as brilliant as the beatles uh yes 
Agreed. Totally. I mean, so many people have said that McCartney's worst career move was not being killed. And Mm -hmm. and that's terrible. But but that's the way cults work, isn't it? Yes. I I want to also point out, you know, move over Busker. You know, I've always thought that this was one of the stronger tracks as well. And, you know, Eric is playing an electric guitar on it, which you can hear quite a bit. I, th- I think it's Eric, what you hear, you know, when you hear the guitar playing, I think it is Eric. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that I don't like, again, are the uh, program drums that are on it. Mm. But I love how Paul sings this, and it kind of reminds me of, of uh, Levon Helm singing, uh, you know, I think the song is When I Paint My Masterpiece by the band. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, I don't yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but uh, the way Paul sings it really kind of just touches into that. You know, he's kind of curling the the, the lyrics uh, like Leave on Hell did on that song. It, it always comes to mind when I hear it. And I also like the line in the song about uh, Mae West, too. Uh, I don't remember exactly what it is, but there's a reference. Mae West sweaty vest, I think it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Which, uh-huh. which I think was a Beatles saying. I mean, that's, mm. I think right. it was an in-joke in the Beatles. Well, okay. Yeah. I, I must admit, a move over, over Busker, it just brings a smile to my face because I, I picture McCartney and Stuart walking through Manchester or Liverpool city centre <laughs> at Christmas with their big yeah. coats on, um, watching some bloke um, strumming their way badly through Let It Be or something. And, yeah. and they just they just look over they look at each other they look at the busker and they just <laughs> gesture with their thumbs and said look mate op it <laughs> leave it up or, to us <laughs> or maybe it should be warrington which is equidistant and in the middle of uh, manchester and uh, liverpool there's a point they could they could they could busk <laughs> in the queue for ikea at warrington yeah exactly 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 <laughs> <laughs> they're calling it uh, buster which i think they originally had called it they went with busker because they felt it was like a, you know, a, a harsher word. I, I you know, to, yeah. you know, conveyed, you know, a harsher, uh, yeah, strong presence. You know, uh, I don't remember what the what the exact quote is about what they said about that. Yeah, you've but just ruined the, my joke, uh, Panny. But <laughs> hey ho. But is yeah, that, it was that right? Buster, was it? Was it Buster? It? it was Buster. Yeah, yeah. Which is very yeah. old-fashioned, isn't it? Yeah. Which yeah. they weren't happy with, so they they changed it. Yeah. 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 One of the things that I think is interesting that we got in Eric's book because um, the the you know we all read about the how tortuous the the press to play recording sessions were. Mm. But there's some lovely little passages in his book that he shared with him and Paul having fun in the studio. There's a couple of pieces, including a, a lovely little gag at Andrew Lloyd Webber's expense. <laughs> so it's it's clear, clear in the early stages of recording, I guess, that they were having a lot of fun and there was a lot of joy in the studio. 
Well, you you mentioned your IKEA just a just a fraction too soon, didn't you? Because that <laughs> that takes us very neatly from one Swedish export to another. Brilliant. I guess the first, you know, Eric was working with um, with Paul and he'd been approached about doing a few projects after 10CC had finished at the end of um, 83. He was approached by uh, Phil Manzanera and Andy Mackay about potentially working together in The Explorers. Mm. Um, and um, I think he, he lent some backing vocals uh, to a couple of the tracks but wasn't interested in doing that on a sort of a permanent basis. He was also approached by um, his friend Nick Mason from Pink Floyd to write some uh, music together, I think, for, for films and, and advertising. And again, he, he sort of turned that down and, and actually suggested Rick Fenn, which um, opened up a, an alliance between uh, between Rick and, and Nick Mason. So really the first the first project that he that he accepted, if you ex if you exclude the McCartney um, contributions, really was this um, opportunity to produce Agnetta's um, solo album Eyes of a Woman um, which was to be recorded at ABBA studio, po Polar Studios in um, in Stock yeah. Stockholm and um, you know I think you know the, the great thing about the project as we all know ABBA were big fans of, of 10cc, Benny and Bjorn as songwriters would very often um, cite them as a big influence you know back in the day mm. uh, Frida recorded a slightly comical Swedish version of um, of Wall Street Shuffle oh, on one of her solo albums. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I love and, um, that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and always would cite 10CC as a favourite band. And I think it was you know Agneta was probably in a similar similar place. So I think it it was probably with Abba coming to a to an end. Uh, I suppose around the same time as 10CC, it was her first first post. Um, Abba project, I would imagine, or, or there I, or thereabouts. I think I think there was another there was another album before Liam, actually. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I think what Eric did was he he phoned round um, a lot of friends in the industry to to provide songs for the album, and I think some of those um, made it onto the album. You know, people you know like Justin Hayward, obviously, as a as a friend of Eric's, wrote the song "The Angels Cry" or provided that. Jeff Lynne from ELO provided "One Way Love." Uh, John Wetton and Jeffrey Downs um, of, of Asia yeah. provided um, uh, "We Move as One." I think there were other friends. Um, when I met up with Rick Fenn, he was saying that they also recorded a, a song that um, Roy Wood had provided for the album, but it never made it onto the final. Um, didn't make the final cut. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it's interesting that, you know, it's quite a broad range of Eric's contacts, and yeah. including Eric also writing a couple of songs and co-writing a couple of things with um, uh, with, with Agnetha. Um, and I think the core of it was recorded effectively with the heart of the, what was the sort of the last iteration of the 10CC touring band that, that mm. finished touring in October 83. So we've got Jamie Lane, who came in to replace uh, Paul Burgess. You've got Vic Emerson, continuing from you know from side cafe continuing from a keyboard's point of view and, and rick fenn from a from a guitar perspective and uh, they all record i think it was in september 84 that they started the, the project um and recorded sort of 15 or 16 songs at, at polar studios mm. so um you know a, a quite high profile 
project. I think uh, in the end, um, you know, the first single from the record, I Won't Let You Go, was was co-written with Agneta and, and Eric. I think Eric providing the, um, the lyric. I think you can hear Eric's vocals in the background because Eric played on the album as well, keyboards and yes. backing vocals. He even designed the album cover or co-designed the album cover, so we're clearly heavily involved. Mm. Um, but I think ultimately, we'll talk about the album in a second, ultimately, uh, as the album was being released, I think Agneta took the opportunity to decide to effectively retire, which uh, wasn't the best timing. And so just when they were about to sort of go live with, you know, some high profile TV spots in the UK, programs like Wogan that at the time were sort of almost, uh, you know, big slots for bands to hawk their new singles. I think uh, Agneta certainly in the UK uh, said she wasn't going to do any promotion mm. of the album which I think, you know, was, a, was an unsatisfactory end to it. Um, but that's a bit of the backdrop so of, of the album, and it was released eventually in um, spring 1985 is when it came out. Okay, um, I, I like the concept, which is basically British pop writers you know, provide a selection of songs uh, for one of the great European singers. Um, but unfortunately, it falls a little short. I guess we'll talk about the production. I can, I can, I can almost see. Uh, you can smell short. my opinion, can't you, Paul? I, I, I can see. I think I see <laughs> steam coming out your ears. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> just talk about the songs first, because um, they're they're all right, but they're a little bit of a come down. Um, Especially when you consider Benny Bjorn and Tim Rice were writing and recording in the same building mm. what I think is a masterpiece, the, the album of chess. Uh, and so it doesn't reflect too well on, on what was happening, you know, uh, next door, if you like, in, in whichever studio it was that, that Eric and Agneta were work on, working on the album. Um, I, I do like the, the single, I Won't Let You Go. Um, I, I think it's, it's great because Agneta outwrites anybody else on the album really it's yeah. a catchy a catchy record she wrote the music and, and it's, it it's a good it's a good chorus isn't it actually yeah it oh, doesn't oh, although it's kind of wrapped in 80s stylings it doesn't sound that different to um a lot of the records that she had hits with in sweden and wrote in the 60s it, it sort of harks back to 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 the, to that period for her really i think i think it's a good track I was a big hit in uh, most uh, of Europe, though, right? If I remember correctly. Yeah, it was a massive hit. All up, well, pretty much all over Europe. I think it got to number two in Sweden. So, mm. okay, mm. It, was, yeah. it was certainly a big hit. Yeah, I think it's got a great melody as well, and uh, the hook is fantastic too. And I, is it a fact that Eric wrote most of the lyrics on it? Is that is that we yeah. know that for sure? I think, I think yeah. he wrote. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they certainly co-wrote it together. I mean, I think his role was mainly around lyrics. I mean, I don't know how, how involved he was in the musical um, side of things, but it's, yeah, it's yeah. certainly a collaboration between the two of them, as was the B-side, You're There, which is which is which um, didn't make it onto the album, but uh, I think is, you know, is a relatively good track as well. You're there, you're there in the morning And the heart is away Sleeping away 
it's, can... it's probably the most aberish tra- mm. track on, on that CD, isn't it, Liam, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Even though it, it's slightly... I mean, I made unfavourable comparisons to Christopher Cross before. I mean, I, I, Christopher Cross is one of my secret pleasures, actually, but there's a, a, a Christopher Crossy sax, and the electric piano kind of smacks of of, of US ballad, uh, and it's a bit. It is a bit sugary, um, mm. so I'm not fond of it. But I like I like the ABBA references there. So mm. uh, yeah, I kind of uh, my th- my thumb is kind of raised rather than lowered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I, I I wrote in my notes another song Eric may have been writing for Gloria um, <laughs> for a change because it does you know it's a, it's a nice track and as you say it's a little bit sugary Sean uh, hmm. but it also sounds like a typical Eric love song you know I mean I hear a bit of runaway in it a little yes. bit of I Take you home yeah, which yeah. I know you guys love <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Eric's lyrics seem to be okay for, you know for her to sing the production is very subtle has that 80s feel as you would expect um, but um, you know again some of the you know there's a line in uh, Runaway uh you know, if you could read between the lines, if you, you know, whatever he says in that first stanza, um, I, I find that this kind of has the undertones of that, the song does. Yeah. You know, literally speaking. I don't know how to tell you There's so much that I wanted to say There's another track that has very, very strong late 10cc overtones, doesn't it? I think it's Agneta's favourite on the album, I Won't Be Leaving You. Yeah. Uh, and the very, the, the, lyrically, the setting of the song is is in familiar territory. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> Go on, uh, you, okay. you say it, Paul. I, I can't, I dare, I, I, I dare not let that word pass uh, my Liam, lips. Yeah, go on. It's in the restaurant. Come on. Yeah. (laughs) We sat down together. Our table for two. We went through the menu so slowly. I just couldn't take my eyes off you. Yeah, where the. Get this. I love this line. Well, I don't love this line. Um, the waiters were waiting. <laughs> there might there might be a pun there. Yeah, yeah, and it, and he slips in the line: the juices were flowing. Oh, that's, yeah, that's that line that that Eric uses a lot. But yes. I, I, on that track, I would like to, I guess, because I was listening to a composition, or at least a co-composition by Eric Stewart that wasn't a ten cc track. I kind of listened for his his input and you can really hear it that it's an eric song yes and i came up with something which i think uh going into kind of song architecture mode if you'll just indulge me for a minute or two Mm -hmm. Um, and i think he does this elsewhere quite a lot the the second time the verse comes round, he kind of shortens things by a bar and then he adds like a tailpiece where it's actually the bit where he says the waiters were waiting that's seven bars into the phrase. Then, it, then he kind of chops it and then adds in a little bit, a different bit into the chorus where he says they came and they went away. Oh. And it, it, that's a technique which I think he uses a lot. Having said that, the only other place I've found so far where he definitely uses that technique is is the song Memories, 
but it just sounded yeah. like an Eric um, mm. trademark move, and and that that, that 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 interested me. I thought it was a, a nice a nice touch. To that yeah, no, I'm with you. I I think it's a very very Eric uh, sounding song. I, I think it's actually got a nice melody. To be fair. We gazed and the waves were waiting. They came and went away. Everything around me disappeared. What lets this down and everything else? on the album for me, I mean literally every single track on, on the album is that I think the, the production is truly horrible I'm being being absolutely genuine about it, yes it's 1985 which was mm-hmm. a, a very poorly time for record production uh, yeah. I think the late 80s were arguably the only time in, in record history where uh, we can kind of consign albums to the bin because of the way they sound. Yeah. Uh, in all other eras, we kind of forgive the sound, and they, they sound almost timeless sometimes. But, yes. the, but the late 80s is, is particularly guilty, and this yeah. album is, is really particularly guilty. There's a horrible kind of cold, um, yeah. roomy, big reverb that m- makes it sound like it's recorded down downstairs in a, an empty warehouse. Yeah, an um, empty refrigerator. Yeah, yeah, and and it's got the kind of Euro synthy Euro disco uh, kind of electro beat to it, where Eric's uh, he's pandering to to European chart tastes, and and a little bit of the late Abba. You know, this, the, some of the interesting stuff Abba were, were doing on the Visitors album, yeah, that kind of um, sequence synthy kind of stuff. I think he's pandering to that, and he's adding in that big, big kind of snare sound of the mid '80s, and uh, and what you've got is something that that doesn't do and yet are any favours. I think it just sounds extremely manufactured, very cold, and and really, really unlikable. I think it's a, a really a horrible album for for that reason uh, and I find it really hard to listen to and and I'm not yeah. I'm not saying that for effect I'm just saying yeah. that I'm I'm afraid that Eric er, Eric seems to be compromising on too many levels there as producer um and and it it just doesn't work and and I'm filtering that through um the fact that I grew up in my 20s th- through the 1980s and I have a lot of fondness for a lot of the records that were released at that time but I it still won't pass through my filter I hope I'm not being too strong there. I, I, agree, I agree with you completely, Sean. The production really sounds like just what you say, Eric was trying to tap in to that Euro disco thing, which yeah. was popular at that time. Yeah, and, huge. And, and it, and, uh, you know, if you look at the success of this album in Europe and it's in Sweden, uh, it truly, uh, you know, was what was selling, what was popular, and what was on the radio. Um, but yeah, going back to hear it now, it, it's just a bit overproduced. Uh, too many synthesizers, too many sounds, too much. I think um, a bit like press to play, really. Yeah, you can throw a few barbs at the production, but as always, it comes down to the songs. The songs just aren't that good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe the production doesn't help. Um, it sounds a bit like a 
kind of low intensity to, together in electric dreams in places. As you, you, were, you were talking about the, the sequences, and I, I can hear that. What, what is also interesting is that he manages to make Agnetta sound only really an above average singer. Mm. Yeah. So you hit the right spot, but you still got the itch. Business and pleasure, you it's a bitch. Just a case of the face and a place on his rings. That sort of um, reflects back on on the magic of of Benny Anderson and Bjorn Nivaeus, mm-hmm. who were able to make those voices sparkle. I think they overdubbed, sped up versions of the girls' voices and yeah. things like that. And, they had, and, and the songs it, and the songs were genius, Paul. The songs were genius, but I'm yes, but I'm specifically talking about the sound of Agneta's vocals, which yes. which is a little dull and just kind of pedestrian and ordinary compared to the way she soars on some other material yes maybe you can't disentangle that from the material i don't know um but yeah he, he doesn't quite nail the, the, the vocal sound one more thing before i let somebody else jump in yeah i hear what he's saying but he ne- eric never produced a record anything like this before or since i mean windows in the jungle which was only a couple of years before doesn't sound anything like this whatsoever mm. uh, so I wonder whether Polar Studios itself was was an influence on on the sound. I don't know. Yeah, it could well have been, and and Agneta may well have said, and her management may well have said, look, we want this to sound really current and Euro. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that was it. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, def- it's definitely um, a, a very you know sound of the moment, isn't it? Uh, that yeah. it was recorded, um, yeah. and that must have been part of the part of the brief. Is it needs to sound this? It's you know, there's a lot. I mean, I think the drum sounds are uh, are awful as well. You know, the drum sounds, oh. you know, you say partly because of the reverb, and then I think the those synthesizer sounds also, I think, on there have uh, have not aged aged well for the things you just discussed. So, mm. yeah, it's a hard album, hard album to like. I mean, there are a couple of tracks that get under, underneath it all that that I quite like, but it's again, it's hard to get get beyond the production to that um and certainly when you look at the quality of the songwriting talent that's on display it doesn't live up to the to the promise of the all those people that contributed um music to the album i don't think honestly it's like the bastard son of jump and eurovision I was going to say everything we're discussing. The, the song "Save Me" kind of wraps it all up in a nutshell. I mean, it's not a great song. It's got a horrible production, the horrible drums, ah, the guitar. But the, the guitar riff is a bit lame. Bit ten cc ish, uh, arguably. Yeah, it has it has a hook. Yeah, that's okay. Why does everybody disappear when you need somebody? But again, the lyrics fall into those really bad cliche lyrics that we're always you know kind of ripping eric about mm-hmm. uh why don't you save me tell me you love me it'll be all right i mean yeah it it fails too, too much for me it's yeah. just horrible it's sad it's sad when in my notes i'm 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 kind of putting an asterisk by the nice did did bvs and, and that that's it apart from the, the sort of 10 cc ish guitar riffs when I'm ha- when I'm having to mention the dip dip BVs as like the only saving grace, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I I know then that I'm I'm trying too hard to like something, um, and uh, yeah, I I just 
you know, I, I, I can I can live without this record forever, to be honest. Why don't you I just launch a partial defensive. No, please do, please do, Paul. Uh, 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 why don't you save me? Um, another Eric co-write, isn't it? I like that. I mean, if it's I've written, sounds like a look here reject, which maybe yes. doesn't sound <laughs> doesn't sound like a promising appraisal, but uh, you know, you, you've got to take ten cc music where you can. I do like it. It's got some good chord changes. Um, Agneta there sounds like she's got a cold or something. It's a kind of weird <laughs> vocal. But, but yeah. you know, I, I I like both of the Eric co-writes on balance. I, mm. I really do. Okay. Save me's probably my yeah the, the the one track that I'd say from a burning house. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, we did talk about I won't be leaving you, and uh, you know, I, I think I read somewhere that. Uh, Agnetha said uh, it was one of her favorites that she'd ever recorded, mm. and I and I think uh, it wasn't a single if I remember right, but uh, she added it to one of her best of collections. Okay, because one of the songs that she really liked. So, anyway, mm. well, one one other thing in Eric's book, he says that Stig Anderson, who was Abba's manager and I think was still Agnetha's manager at that point, came in and and said rather nastily i don't hear a hit mm. and sort of and went off again uh the reason i mentioned that is uh, a few months ago i read phil collins autobiography and he was he just produced frida's solo album and mm. stick Addison mm. came in and said exactly the same thing out of so, interest paul how do you feel about about frida's album uh, I, I actually own that on vinyl Mm, I don't know it that well, apart from the single and, and her remake of You Know What I Mean, which is a song I love. I, I, I can't remember much about it, to be honest. Yeah. Is it is it yeah. better than this one? I guess it is. Oh, it's, it's sub-susudio. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that, that's all I can remember about it, to be honest. Yeah, Something Going On was a hit over here in the States, and I that's the only thing I've ever heard from it. Okay. Yeah. I remembered on the radio making the Phil Collins connection to it. So yeah. Who can explain to me the 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 hiatus between this album and the McCartney stuff? And there seems to be an apparent gap between that and when Eric resurfaces with Alan Parsons. Am I right in thinking that his first collaboration with them is is in 1990? Was he was he active in the late 80s? Yeah, I mean there were there were a few other there were I mean, lots of projects that um, he was working on. You know, Dave Gilmore from Pink Floyd, who was trying to reboot Pink Floyd at a difficult time. Yes, uh, you know, oh, of course, uh, yes, yes. You know. And he was trying out different different lyricists, and, yeah. and I know he spent a bit of time with Eric in September '86 uh, to sort of do that, which obviously didn't come come to anything necessarily. Eric continued to uh, produce bands, um, you know, a few bands that were on the up but didn't eventually make it. Um, one of the one of the bands is a is a group called Hearts and Minds mm. that he recorded about six uh, songs for. Um, 
but it, I don't think the album was necessarily released. Interestingly, Hearts and Minds, um, I don't know whether anybody's familiar with a band called the Pearl Fishers. Oh, love um, them, love yeah. them. Um, but David David Scott, who is the, the leader of the Hearts and Minds. We, we know him well, we know him well Liam, oh, we right. know him well. Okay. Well, he, he contributed to when when I was interviewing him for the for the for the book just via uh, you know via a few emails. You know, he was really complimentary about Eric. It's interesting. You know, you, we talk about people like Eric being um, you know uh, awestruck with the option of, of writing with McCartney, but mm. you know, people like David Scott talks the same way. You know, of having mm. someone like Eric in the studio uh, and talks very very positively about the music of Ten CC and the the job Eric did on the um, you know on that album. So there were a few things few things that happened like that, um, and then towards the end of the eighties, of course, um, Eric decides to have the operation. You know, he decides he wants to change of life, so that's when he moves to uh, to to France. Mm. Um, he has his eye operation. And I think, you know, that that's the point, I think, for a little while where music starts to take a bit more of a, of a backseat to yes. um, other other pursuits. Although there are these, still these projects, as you say, like um, Alan Parsons, there's, you know, two or three albums over the course of the 90s that he contributes to. Um, so that's the kind of the, you know, the, the end of the... And obviously then you also get the offer to reform 10CC mm. around 1990 as well, which, which takes a while to materialise as, as meanwhile in 92. So... They're the, they're the kind of main things that were were happening at that at that time. Fascinating perspective, and uh, we'll have to we'll have to dig out our favourite Pearl Fishers tracks. Uh, we've yep. um, we've performed with Davy Scott, um, and uh, he's, he's a lovely chap. Yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't realise a Pearl Fisher's connection. I, I went looking for these Hearts and Minds tracks because because they were in your book. It sounded really fascinating. Yeah. I couldn't find anything. What about the band Flip, Liam? They didn't you also yeah. produce them? Yeah, he produced, uh, I think, a couple of tracks for a band. I'm not sure whether they were a, a UK band or a, a German band called Flip. Right. Uh, again, recorded at, recorded at Abbey Road and... Um, the, the lead singer of Flip just talks about the highlight for him almost recording the album was Eric performing a rendition of um, I'm Not In Love on the sort of Grand Prix Piano at Abbey Road, just mm-hmm. saying that's mm-hmm. a thrill for them to hear that. Um, but if, you, if you're in touch with, with uh, Davy Jones, I know that they recorded... Davy Scott, uh, yeah. Davy Scott, sorry. Um, he recorded, I think, six songs with Eric, but only one of them was released as a single. So... Um, you know, the, the other ones have never really made an appearance. So uh, maybe, okay. maybe we should see whether we can track down the other, yeah. the other five or six. I'll give you anything, anything Liam, I really like the uh, quote in your book about, uh, you know, when David Gilmore was, you know, sodding out, you know, you know, mm. Eric Delericus and, the others, you know, to create uh, what is it, the division bell? Um, momentary lapse of reason. Oh yeah, momentary yeah. lapse of reason. You know, the the comment from Roger Waters saying, yeah. <laughs> "What did he say?" Uh, you know, if he you said, wanna... "I've got to hand it to him. I've got, I've got to hand it to Dave. He goes to stellar talent when he's looking for a you know a collaborator or or to make a forgery, whatever it is." So yeah, yeah, yeah it shows how how the, the esteem that um, Roger Waters had for for Eric and the other people that. Um, that uh, Dave Gilmore was sounding out at the time. Yeah. The ring is magic. The ring is power. 
One of my guilty pleasures is Alan Parsons' project. I've got two or three of their records. Um, Turn of a Friendly Card, iRobot, and, and The Best Of. Um, Eye of the Sky, I think, kind of lurks somewhere in the collection. How did Eric come to get involved with, with the Alan Parsons project? I think that first album, Freud, is it Freudiana, I think, was the yeah. album. I think that originally was intended to be a Alan Parsons project album, but it morphed into something completely different. I, I think one, one of the things, I think that one of the connections is, is coming back to um, Eric Wolfson, mm. who was obviously a member of Alan Par- Parsons project, and um, he was recording at strawberry with the guys from 10 cc in the in the early 70s yes, uh, yeah. um, you know, we, we, we featured we featured one of those yes. tracks i think yeah. in, in one of the recent podcasts Sounds okay yeah that's it yeah. yeah 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 now there's there's some quote i've seen recently uh, where where they've said that he almost joined 10 cc but their management wouldn't pay him or something like that which i'm not quite sure sounds about right <laughs> but it but it sounds like he may very well have been you know, knocking around Strawberry, at, uh, and obviously was at that time. So I think it's probably a, a, a consequence of that connection back then. And I think also Alan Parsons is a great fan of Eric's voice. Yes. Um, I think it's as sim- simple as that. That I think when it came to then casting vocalists, particularly when he was then making his solo albums in the in the nineties, um, you know, he would he would pick certain songs that he thought would be a great fit for um, for Eric's voice. And I think Eric really enjoyed. You know, just the the option to go in and sing without any responsibility beyond that. A bit like you know, Kevin did. You know, enjoyed the the opportunity to sing on on Meanwhile without any of the other stuff that kind of goes with it. Yes. Um, c- certainly, when it comes to Eric's solo album, where, which we'll come on to, when there's the booklet that comes with it, um, and I think there's a few quotes in there from some of the collaborators that Eric had worked with. You know, Alan Parsons, McCartney, Sadaka, and I think within that, I think Alan Parsons says, you know, he was always. Eric's always been one of my favourite vocalists, so I think mm. it's a it's a combination of the um, you know the Eric Wolfson connection, and I think just Eric's credentials, which is as a, as a great vocalist. Great point, yeah, I- and and Alan Parsons have got a, a very very long history of using some fantastic singers i mean some of my favorite singers actually uh, have guested on their albums people like chris rainbow and colin yeah. blundstone for example i mean some wonderful singers yeah the thing that i that i love about uh, eric's uh, appearance on you know the three or four albums where he does a track or two it, eric sounds so relaxed mm. with the singing it and, and it's it's almost like, you know, like you say, he's just coming in to do a session and not have to worry about all the production, all the mm-hmm. musicians, all that. And, uh, you know, the, the one tune, uh, I'm not sure which album it's from, but Siren Song. I mean, he sings it so pleasantly and so uh, serenely. You know, I, I, I just, I think it's a good combo, you know, for Eric and, you know, you know to be part of the tracks that he's part of. Uh, it's yeah, a lo- it's I, I, a lovely song that that I think that's from Alan Parsons' first solo album, isn't it? Try anything once. Yeah, I think it's from that one. Yeah, it's so yeah. subtle, isn't it, Penny? And, and yeah, it's, yeah, it's just, slow. It's it, the harmonies yeah. are lovely. It's gentle. Yeah, and, it, and it, isn't his vocal? And, it's so low, isn't it? So in in such yeah, a low yeah. register for him. Days, goodbye, drift upon. 
Yeah, and he's and he's singing it is so sweetly. I mean, it's yeah, boy. Yeah, I, I'm so with you. It's so unexpected and so different, almost yeah, that, almost unrecognizable, actually. Yeah, and and that that's one of of two of the songs that that really stand out for me on, on Eric's contribution for Alan Parsons. There's that one Siren song which you've mentioned, um, right. and Blue Blue Sky. I only know what I can see So I imagine what could be Yeah, that was the other one I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, not the little intro bit, but the but the long version of it. Yeah, because yeah. there's like part one and a part two. And, and it's, it stands out for me in... in in many different ways. The blue, blue sky. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sunday I'll touch the blue, blue sky. I heard, I've managed to uncover five tracks, but I must have missed Blue, Blue Sky. Didn't didn't know about it. I, out, yeah. out of the ones I heard, I'd, I'd say Siren Song was the outstanding track. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not a huge uh, Alan Parsons sort of project uh, fan. So I think, you know, when I've listened to the albums, it's really been, um, you know, to hear Eric perform them. So, I mean, for me, it's always a great Eric vocal is always a, a joyful thing to behold. And I think, as you say, those some of those tracks you've, you, you've picked out, um, his vocal performance on it is just fantastic. And it's just lovely to hear him, hear him sing, because that was a period of time when, I guess, post the uh, Winners in the Jungle album to the Meanwhile album, there were, there were actually very few opportunity, opportunities to hear Eric, Eric yeah. singing. Um, so on, those, on that Freud, Freudiana album, you know, to hear his voice and then subsequently to hear them on the on the Alan Parsons project was a was a treat. But I, I can't claim to be um, necessarily a big fan of of the of the parent albums. But I, I do like the songs that we've just been talking about. Yeah, true. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the Freudiana album or, or indeed Eric's uh, vocal contribution. And for me, Alan Parsons. I've got a love-hate relationship with me. They will always seem like the James Last of prog. <laughs> I can break these chains While I'm upside down Well, it may seem strange I don't hit the ground As vaguely prog as you can get. Yeah, you just um, gave last a uh, compliment there, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean, though, don't you? It, it's very, yeah, very absolutely. easy, easy listening, and it's uh, it's always the same tempo, um, very yeah. sort of ploddy and extremely listenable. Um, it's I've I've listened to them a few times actually recently. I've got three or four albums on on vinyl, and um, they just they float into the background very, very pleasantly. I think the only other album uh, that I kind of got into was Ammonia Avenue. I. I always felt don't answer me was a great single mm. it's not an eric uh, vocal i trying to remember who sings it but uh other than that i i've been a bit dismissive on uh alan parsons except for the eric tracks of yeah. one or two up i mean yeah. there, there, there are quite a few 10cc connections obviously turn of a friendly carb mm. was the first album that i yeah. encountered of course godly and cream kind of designed that cover 
um, yeah. as an obscure reference. And I and I do like that album. I think there's some lovely some lovely tracks on it, and lovely to hear Chris Rainbow. But for me, the the, the key moment on all of this Alan Parsons stuff, um, Siren Song, yes, lovely. But for me, it was Blue Blue Sky, and I'll, I'll tell you yeah. why. It was the the sheer delight of hearing Eric's voice with no reverb on at all, completely dry, with just an acoustic guitar. Boy, Sean, that is a great point, and... uh... Now that you mentioned that, that's exactly what makes it so. Yeah, yeah. We were talking last time, Panny, about how we loved the dry vocal on on "Make the Pieces Fit." The girls' version, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And, and then when he re-released it, he added all the reverb and exactly all that sort of thing. And this is precisely that sort of moment where you just hear Eric's voice there, right in front of your face. Yeah, rather like. Graham's songs on Mirror Mirror. And ironically, I think Blue Blue Sky sounds a lot like Now You're Gone, uh, which, of course, is one of Graham's songs. You promised me life You promised everything would change I only know what I can see So why yeah, it does have a little bit of that, a hint of that, definitely. It really, really does. And and I, it's delicious. The first version of it on the album is kind of like a prelude, um, and it's mostly sound effects, and you have like 30 seconds of Eric and an acoustic guitar. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 of course, you know my thoughts on the five-and-a-half-minute pop song. Um, sure. it, it's such a relief that the record's done and dusted in one minute 20, yeah, uh, it's wonderful, and then of course it's reprised at the end of the album in exactly the same way. You know, completely un unproduced guitar and vocal, and and yeah. that is a magical moment where I, I feel I'm actually with Eric, and yeah. and on so much of this stuff post bloody tourists, I don't feel I'm I'm with Eric in the studio. I feel he's kind of buried amid reverbs and delays and. And and bad drum reverb, you know. The it really highlights Eric's wonderful vocal ability, kind of like you say in a stripped down way. That really kind of gets it to stand out. You know, you yeah. really kind of wow, this guy is a great singer. I mean, we all we've always known that that he's a great singer, but it really kind of reminds us of how really a great singer he is. we're talking about or have been talking about Eric's productions or possible productions I, I was very interested in his book to read that Dexy's Midnight Runners sent him a, a demo recording of Come On Eileen yeah. and his reaction was I, I can't really I think it was literally in the book I can't add anything to that and he, dis, and he declined the chance to record them well I, I was listening to an interview coincidentally with, with Clive Langer who, who with Alan Winstanley did record Common Eileen, 
And he was handed exactly the same demo tape and also said, I can't add anything to that, mm. but, but produced it anyway. So I think that's a very honorable artistic decision of, of Eric's to just kind of to turn it down when obviously they'd already had a big hits, that band. And mm. this mm. surely, you know, you could tell even from a, from, from a, from a original version of this song that it was going to be something special. So I don't know why he turned that down, but um, he did. Yeah, and it, I think that's kind of shows a bit of Eric's uh, humbleness too to say, you know, this is a great track mm. without input, and why should I, you know, uh, do anything to try to make it better when it's already this good, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, right. No, absolutely. Yeah. That's a lot of artistic integrity, isn't it? Yeah, totally. been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening